the story up to now. Hello everyone, Mike the DM here. Uh, we have notched up more than 100 episodes in our adventure series, and while this is one long continuous story, and we encourage everyone to listen to the story from episode 1 so they get all of the action, we realize that catching up on that many hours of content can, can be a bit daunting. Uh, or perhaps you're enjoying the new sound quality and want to just hit the episodes with the new recording equipment and want to know what has happened up to here. Either way, if you're a new listener just jumping in, or if you're a returning fan and want to get caught up quickly on what you missed, this is your chance to come up to speed so you can join us going forward. So without further ado, this is the story up to now. Our story opens with the party members dispersed to many locales in the south of Faroe. No one finds himself at odds with his master and is sent on walkabout to find himself. At the same time, in a different part of the monastery, Adri finds herself cornered by a mysterious elf that intones that he knows the secret that she carries and will, will reveal it if she too doesn't leave the monastery to try to find whatever magical force is ruining the land and sowing the seeds of chaos. The pair leave and wander down the mountain to Lowford. Nearby, two other members of the party are finding that their fortunes are taking a turn for the worse. Arlen is told by his father that with the fogs coming out of the mountains and their family farm is suffering, he should leave and go to Lowford to find work. Meanwhile, Gurnval is being laid off of his job as a caravan guard, as commerce has fallen and the caravan is being eliminated. The caravan master recommends the nearby town of Lowford, as he has heard there are jobs there. On the other extreme, Alistair is riding high as he's graduating after years of training as a paladin in the Order of Dianect and being sent to Lowford to help the friar there with his ministry. The group eventually finds itself in the town hall, each answering the notice asking for new members of the militia. At the hiring hall, they find that they are the last to be paired up and so the party is formed. A motley crew of a dragonborn fighter, a half-elf paladin, and another who is a farmer with the sorcerer's powers, and a tiefling and a half-elf monk. Their first patrol is almost their last, as they encounter first a giant spider and then a pack of ravenous wolves. The party is victorious, but barely, and several members are almost killed. As they bandage their wounds, the party notices that all of the animals they encountered look to be starving. Limping back into town, they are hailed as heroes for eliminating the wolves that had been preying on the local flocks. Now firm in the town's confidence, the city council asks the party to carry the embassy to the baron in Civitas Cataracta, asking for help. As they watch the party disappear down the road, the town is overrun by the walking dead. Things don't go much better for the party, though, as the, they are set upon by giant frogs and lizards that they determine are also starving. Things are not well in the wild. The party does eventually arrive at Civitas Cataracta and are witness to two events, one exhilarating, being overflown by a giant airship, and the other disturbing, being offered the drug Torque by a shady character working the entrance line at the gate. Entering the city, they find that there is a long queue to get into the keep to see the Baron, and worse yet, his schedule is full for the day. The party will have to find accommodations for the night at a local inn. There, the party finds over dinner that they have never truly become acquainted after being thrown together. It is clear that there is much in everyone's past that they don't wish to discuss, 
but Grenval breaks the awkward silence, and the group opens up to one another, to a degree. Further discussion is cut short as a little girl comes screaming from the cellars, pursued by what appear to be zombies, and to make matters worse, the fighters' armor and weapons are in their room. The remaining three try to hold off the attackers while the fighters recover their gear and spirit the child to safety. The fighting men return, but not until things are going very poorly for the rest. They do end up triumphing over several waves of attackers, but as the fight progresses, they realize that these are living beings, if mindless, and not undead, and some are covered in fungal growths. As the dust settles, the city guard rushes in and accuses the party of murder, but the small girl validates their alibi that they were attacked, and the guards notice that the attackers show signs of being torque addicts. It is at that point a scream is heard from the street outside. The party and the guards rush out to find it filled with more of these torque zombies, with even more pouring out of the cellars to attack. A huge fight ensues that the party and the guards narrowly win, with the guards too injured to do more than secure the street, and the guard captain orders the party to investigate the cellars. They find the in-cellar and sub-cellar to be full of mindless brutes that they have to fight through, and at the bottom, a den of iniquity filled with bodies encrusted in fungal growths. They also find evidence that the torque is being smuggled in from the neighboring barony of Exculbarium Colise. That evening, Gernval comes to Alistair to ask him about his divine healing powers. He takes a dragonborn to the cathedral where he discovers his connection to Dianect and is multi-classed into cleric. The next morning, the party does have their audience, but with a baroness, as the couple was overwhelmed with the request for assistance and were splitting the, up the workload. She thanked them for their aid in the fights at the inn in the streets and promised to send help to Lowford right away. She then asks if the party couldn't aid the barony by being ambassadors and bringing a petition to Exculbarium Calice to stop the torque trade as they had confirmed that is where the route was coming from. The party agreed, and on the morrow was outfitted with horses and sent on their way. There were adventures to be had before they got there, though. They were barely in the forest when they were jumped by a displacer beast, which nearly feasted on Adri. But most importantly, they met Llewellyn, obviously the leader of a ragtag gaggle of people scratching out an existence in the forest. He claimed to be the cousin to the Baroness of Exculbarium Colise. Going to a makeshift hospital, he showed the party the depredations his cousin had inflicted in her reign of terror on her own people, and asked their help in deposing her so that he could make things right. The party wasn't wholly convinced, and asked to go to the city to take a look for themselves, to which he agreed. First, though, they agreed to help rid of the camp of a black dragon wormling that had taken up residence nearby and was causing havoc, which they did, getting their first magic items. Then later, they helped to hunt a pair of titanic boars. The next day, they headed for Exculbarium Colise and found the stories to be true. They retreated back to the forest before they could be picked up by the secret police and agreed to help with the coup. The next day, they attacked with Llewellyn, entering the keep with him and fighting their way to the Baroness. It was only then that they found out that he was more like twelfth in line to the throne and could only get there by eliminating the rest of his family. The party was hustled out of the keep with gifts of goodwill and promises to end the torque trade. There they stood in the pouring rain with nowhere to go for shelter. 
Looking for a safe haven, Alistair suggests they, they could make it to his old monastery by midnight if they rode steadily. They make their way through the rainstorm and do pull up to the welcoming sight of the walls, and indeed are greeted by a cadre of the senior monks. Their relief is short-lived, though, as the monks drop their hoods and reveal grinning skulls. The fight is on, and the party, exhausted by the day's activities, moves from room to room, clearing the undead. No sign of the former occupants can be found. The party makes its way to the abbot's residence, only to find a grinning, flaming skull waiting for them. It levels Arlen with a fireball, but the rest of the party destroys it. Then they try to rest for the night and heal Arlen up, but are chased out of the building by the skull apparently reforming in the next room in the middle of the night. Fleeing into the rain is not much better, as skeletons and shadows wait there for them. After finishing off their foes, they make an uncomfortable night in the kitchen. The next morning, the party clears the rest of the monastery, ending up in the cathedral, where they find what's left of the former occupants, heaped in the center of the nave, being feasted on by the undead. An even stiffer fight breaks out, and the party chases one of the ghouls into the catacombs. Cornering it there, some of the mummified dead rise to attack, infecting Alistair and Gurnvel with a wasting disease. Rushing back to Savita's Cataracta, hoping to make it there before the infected pair die, the party seeks healing from the clerics there and makes their report on their embassy. The powers that be are thrilled that the torque trade is over, but are aghast that they participated in a coup. The Seneschal then asks the party if they couldn't locate a missing patrol that was clearing out torque dens. During the conversation... They also determine that there is a crazy old wizard in the tower in the middle of the city. Could he have a clue to what's going on? The party does locate the patrol, or what is left of them, in the sewers of the city, and are set upon by a shadow demon that destroyed the patrol. Reporting back and cleaning up, they then visit the wizard in the tower. Initially, he seems like the old coot that he is reported to be, but when they reveal their mission, his demeanor changes, and he introduces himself as Galchabar and he has been looking for a group to help him with the problems besetting the kingdom, which he believes derives from a single hand. He gifts them with a bowl of scrying, which they can use to spy upon their enemy if they can only find his name, and tells them that the only avenue he has not pursued is to consult the oracle of Uberium Concordia, as it is death to go there if you are not of royal blood. The party takes the bowl and the clue, and arranges passage on an airship with the disreputable captain. Their conversation is overheard, though, and they are chased through the streets of the city by the guard, barely making it back to the airship ahead of them. The guards do get a good look at the party, and so they won't be able to return to Savita's Cataracta any time soon. The flight to the Oracle takes them out across the trackless waste of the Mare Arenosum, the sea of sand that occupies the whole of the center of the kingdom, and is less than smooth, as the propulsion system breaks and the party is required to pedal the airship all the way to the city, exhausting themselves. There is also an interesting event that happens in the night. On the first day, they contact Galchbar with a bowl that he gave them. That night, no one wakes to find Alistair using the bowl to gaze upon a dark-haired half-elven girl. When they land, they enter the oracle's chamber, and she does appear to them, giving them a mysterious poem which indicates the person who knows who their foe is, is to be found in the old capital in the Delta, to the southwest as well, as a number of other places that they can't immediately determine. 
They begin to debate its mysterious clues when they hear a noise from outside. Initially fearing discovery by the royal guards, what they find is far worse. The courtyard is crawling with all sorts of undead. Even worse, their, their airship, half of it ripped away, is drifting into the sky, apparently not on any sort of control. A single body falls from it, perhaps that of Dania, their ship captain. They have more pressing matters as the undead charge, and they have a huge fight to clear them out. Triumphing, they take stock of their situation. They are in the middle of the trackless desert, with no transportation, limited food, and even more limited water. Their only hope is to follow the line of oases that dot the course of the ancient river to the delta. Their trek through the desert is fraught with peril as dust storms and mirages confuse them and dust methods and a giant antlion threaten to consume them. During the first combat, a beautiful young man appears to no one when he is put to sleep and bids him to return to the combat and awakes him. Who could that be? Eventually, the party loses its way, deceived by a mirage, but a friendly desert tortoise pulls them in the right direction and leads them to the next oasis. Setting out from this haven, the party spots a shack just off their path. Approaching, a man in a tiger mask runs inside and everyone notices that Arlen is pale and shaking. He reveals that when he was a child, he was magically spirited away, and he woke up to a man in a tiger mask pouring a glowing blue potion down his throat. He then woke up near home. Since that day, he has manifested his chaotic, sorcerous powers the party enters the shack only to find that it is larger on the inside than the out and are immediately set upon by the man's two stuffed tigers. Defeating them, they pursue him down into the basement laboratory where he is apparently distilling the chaotic energies left over from the great mage wars and using them to infuse children. They confront him and an errant lightning bolt releases the chaos into the room. With that, the fight becomes bizarre with chaotic events happening at every turn. Eventually, Arlen fells the mage with magic missiles, avenging him to some degree. As the dust settles, the party frees a young girl, apparently another one of the experiments, and trudges across the mare to return her to his, her family near Dryadim Silvarum. Now, most of the way to the old capital, they continue down the remains of the old low road, but an old friend drops in for a visit. A young black dragon appears, apparently the one they defeated as a wormling, and he aims to get revenge on Adri for felling him. He nearly kills several of the party members before he is chased off, licking his wounds. I wonder if we'll see him again. Hmm. After making repairs, they make the outskirts of the old capital, only to find themselves in a graveyard of the unquiet dead. They are set upon by skeletal knights, while bony arms reach out of the ground to hold them in place. Winning through that fight, they finally make it to Calium Sedes, and what a sight it is. Ruins extend for miles in every direction, and three great U-shaped canals circle around the city and connect it to the sea. And at the sea, stone quays that could have docked a hundred ships. In the middle, still visible, are the remains of the old palace. Approaching, the group skirts around a lair of lizard men they encounter, hoping to leave them for another time but come to a halt when they find the last remaining bridge over the first canal is guarded by a village what appear to be humans. Drawing the guards into a trap, they quickly find that they are Wan Tai as they spit poison into their faces. 
Following the first fight, they move further into the village where the snake-headed humans appear and they learn the wisdom of not splitting the party. Dispatching that group, the party flees across a bridge as some mysterious ceremony begins to take place and they make their way to the palace itself. Standing at the gates of the palace, the party finds some logs put in place in replacement of the old drawbridge and footprints indicating that they aren't the only ones interested in the ancient ruin. Deciding to send Adrian first in full stealth mode to scout quickly turns into a disaster as one of the logs rolls, plunging her into the canal below, and a giant crocodile tries to make a meal out of her. The rest of the party leaps into action and over the side, raining blows into the reptile until it succumbs and they can pull Adri from its maw. It is then that something happens that almost splits the party apart. Getting everyone into dry land, they behold Adri, and it is as if her skin is peeling off, leaving black skin behind. It is only now that they realize that Adri isn't what she claims to be. She is not a half-elf, but a half-drow. Alistair and Arlen, well steeped in the lore of the drow by their elvish parents, leap back in alarm and seem ready to attack her. No one in Gurnville leaped to her defense. Thankfully, cooler heads prevail, and Adri explains that she fled from the Underdark to get away from the horrible drow society that she never wanted to be a part of. Everyone takes a deep breath and agrees to move forward. Inside the palace, the party can only wonder at the opulence of the past. The complex itself is more vast and impressive than anything in the current age, even in its ruin. And ruined it is. Only a small portion still stands, the rest in so many tumbled blocks. They make their way into the old throne room and find everything stripped to bare stone. There seems to be nothing here, and certainly no one that can tell them of the name of their foe. Even a call to Galchabar using the bowl is of no help. On the verge of defeat, the party explores a remaining palace and wonders to find a wing with its glass still intact, and through those windows, a parlor that seems to be untouched despite the passing of a millennia. Using Arlen's mage hand, they open the window, but as soon as they step foot inside, the, uh, the swords and rugs attack. The remaining party vaults through the window, except Adri, who fails roll after roll to climb in the wall. That and Alistair being unable to break free from the rug make the fight a chancy affair, but the party pulls through. They next explore the old armory, where they obtain magic items from the old kingdom, and then wondrously, a hall still populated by fluffy black cats. Finally, they make their way to the old library and behold a sight that stops them. Waiting in the library, as if to receive them on a visit of state, is a woman who must be, though it seems impossible, the last queen of the old kingdom. She tells them of her history and rise to royalty, and how she was foretold as a child that she would betray her instructor and friend in one thousand years' time. So when the old kingdom fell, she sealed herself in a magic circle and has waited ever since for someone to come and ask her. With the last of her strength, she tells the party the name of the instructor was Aloal. They break her circle, and in a matter of moments, one thousand years catches up to her, and she molders into a pile of dust, leaving only her book and her tiara. Then the ages catch up to the building, and the party must flee as it collapses around their ears. Looking for a way out of the city that doesn't require going by the Wantai again, the party encounters a small fishing hut on the shore. 
The husband warns the strangers off. The woman of the house, though, makes a silent plea for help to Adri. Sneaking back to the shack later, Adri talks to her and she claims to be a silky, and that her husband has her skin and holds her against her will. The party talks to the husband who claims she is crazy and wrapped up in the silky fantasy, and even Gernval's spellcasting can't get to the bottom of things. The group puts the site under surveillance and sees the husband go off into the woods that night. Backtracking the next day, they find a chest stored in a nearby stream, and inside, a silky skin. They return to the wife, and she throws it on as she runs to the sea, narrowly missing the husband racing home to stop things. It is only then that they hear the soft noise and see a pair of children in the door to the cabin. Leaving with a bad taste in their mouth, the party heads north towards the Vale of Elves, the next clue on their list. But halfway there, they hear a scream in the woods. Chasing it down, they find a young human woman stuck in the quicksand menaced by harpies. Beating off the attackers and pulling her free, they find that they have added Orlana to their party. But what is she doing out in the wilderness on the other side of the mare from her home? The answer comes as she manifests sorceress powers, and they realize that she is yet another victim of the mad mage of the mare, and determined to send her home, somehow. But first, off to the elves. Meanwhile, some curious eyes are watching the party's passing. Feline eyes. The tabaxi live their secluded existence south of the Vale of Elves, in the library, in the largest tree in the forest and they note the passing of a strange ensemble heading north. But their curiosity is quickly replaced by survival, as their precious library tree is invaded by undead, apparently bent on destroying the library and all of its irreplaceable information. They fend the walking dead off, but realize that out the outside world is taking note of them. As the tabaxi fight for their library, the party contacts the elves, and finds that their arrival has been heralded by Galchabar. They are given refreshments while they describe their quest to their hosts. The elves offer little concrete advice, though. They know nothing of a lowall, but promise to send word to Fairy as the Court of Seasons is following their work. They can't even offer advice on a lowall's tower, which is noted on the ancient map the party found in the Queen's book. The elves tell them that there is only a druid circle where the tower is indicated. Then Gernval gets a headache and passes out and when he revived, he attacks a ranger and runs off into the woods. When he is found unconscious, he knows nothing of what he did. With no other clues, and no word yet from Fairy, the party investigates the druid circle where the map says Alowal's tower stood. After some investigation, they find the cairn of rocks is actually the top of a long-ago rotted set of stairs. Dropping down inside, they find that they are in a chamber of horrors, set up as a student's dorm in a classroom, it is now a tomb. The students' skeletal remains are lashed to the remains of their furniture, apparently all having been killed at once. The party does acquire some magic items from them, though. Descending deeper into the school of hard knocks, the party realizes that this is a Lowell's tower, only now sunk into the ground by immense magics. On the next level, they find the instructor's quarters, although they do not seem to have fared any better than the students'. Still, they find a journal with some pages still legible. They chronicle Alowal's descent into evil and dabbling with necromancy after being stranded in Far when the gates to Fairy closed. Then they find Alowal's quarters, and the results are disturbing. They find a book about necromancy that makes their skin crawl just to touch it. 
and they realize that his bedposts are actually polymorphed victims forced to live all eternity as tortured furniture. They put them out of their misery. On the next level, they find a great lab with a pool of blood still liquid after a thousand years, and gargoyles as guardians which attack. Winning that battle, they make it to the ground floor where the guards lived. They seem to have suffered the worst fate of all. The leaders have been killed like the students and the staff, one of which is a revenant and tries to strangle Arlen. But the guards themselves seem to have been herded into a room and killed with a fiery explosion. The party then descends into the basement and finds itself in a room where each corner is a statue of a weeping angel and which has three exits. After two characters enter a corridor, the remainder find that they cannot and have to take the other two corridors. These corridors end in similar rooms, minus the statues, where skeletons erupt from the ground to attack, but not before the players find that the characters have all swapped rooms. This is high anxiety for the lone character in the third room. As the dust settles, some of the party can hear deathly laughter from far away. This happens three times with the laughter becoming more and more apparent. On the last go-around, there is a snapping of fingers, and the maze disappears and the party finds itself in an arena, surrounded by tears and tears of undead, and sitting at the head of the arena, in a carven chair, must be Lowall. He sends wave after wave of undead at the party, interspersed with refreshments. There is also the largest number of nat ones rolled in an episode maybe ever. Somehow the party survives and advances on a Lowall to at least go out fighting. Olowal tells them that he will see them in hell first, and snaps his fingers, and shatters reality. The party wakes to find themselves on an endless featureless plain of grey under a black sky with only the tiniest hint of purple at the horizon to delineate it. This seems to be some kind of otherware. Time doesn't seem to exist. No matter how far the party walks or runs, the view is the same. Finally, in desperation, one of them kills himself, and his form just melts into the sand. Adri then sets about killing everyone else, and Alistair strikes her down, and then finally, alone, by himself, walking forever, takes his own life. The party is awakened by the elven ranger Darrow guy. A search party was dispatched after the party didn't return for three days. The elves found them in an underground cavern below the buried tower with no evidence of a maze, arena, or an extra-dimensional plane. They hurry the party back to the elvish settlement, as the Court of Seasons is due to arrive the next day. It is also fortuitous that the Moon Festival is happening that very night. Everyone cleans up, but Arlen is summoned to Orlana's room. While the party was gone, apparently her magical powers almost blew up the room. She is panicked as she has no idea how to control her new magics. Everyone attends a grand feast where Grunfowl is given a curried squirrel as the elves fear that their vegetarian cuisine is what caused him to go berserk. They also meet a bard named Nissian, who appeared to play at the festival. That night, everyone is visited by someone close to them, either to their pleasure or to their ill. Arlen is visited by Galchabar, who inquires as to what he saw in the bowl of scrying when they used it with Alawal's name. Hint, hint, they never used it. Arlen is greatly chagrined. Alistair is visited by his brother, who entreats him to return home, and just before he fades, tells Alistair that the city is sick, and he is as well. 
Adri is visited by her sister, who describes all the vile things going on in the Underdark and how she pities her for missing all the torturous fun. No one is visited by his mother, and she reveals to him that she knew his father was something evil, but slept with him for money since she was starving. When the resulting child was born devilish, she ran away from what she had done. Finally, Gernval is visited by the human who found him left for dead and nursed him back to health. Gernval confesses to him that he is lost and doesn't even know who he is anymore and pleads for help. The next day, the Court of Seasons, the Elvish royalty crosses the gateway into Far for the first time in generations. They hold court in the Elvish settlement and interview the characters. Their historian brings records about a Lowall and indicates that his was a school of illusion. I think the characters had already figured that one out. There is another huge feast, and the court promises to send any information that bears on the subject. The next day, the Autumn King and Queen remain behind to give the party magical gifts before they too return to Fairy. Then the party finally uses the bowl to scry on a Lowall. They receive a series of images, an oasis covered with a cloud, a blue village covered in ice, an island on the ocean with a spire, a dark cavern with a dark city a cave in the mountains with a trickle of smoke coming out, a castle resting on a cloud, and a scarred, fiery landscape where you can almost hear the shrieks of the damned. The party leaves the elves and heads to the docks at Kalesque, land of the halflings, to charter a sand ship to take them to the oasis in the mare. As they go, they cross an invisible line. On the elvish side, everything is normal, but on the other, decay and fungus have begun to creep in everywhere. The party treks to the dockside, and in the hiring hall, the half-elf in front of them turns around and takes one look at Alistair and says, Cotter, where have you been? Alistair says that he must be mistaken, which the half-elf accepts, but the party doesn't buy even for a minute. Then another voice pipes up behind them and says, There you are. Do you know how long I've been looking for you? And the party spins around to find Dania, the ship captain, they thought they had lost at Ubrium Concordia. She offers to take them to the mare. The party disembarks at the clouded oasis and is immediately jumped by a bullet, which they finish off quickly. Then they see an amazing sight. A fountain bubbles by the oasis, feeding its water into the lake. Gernville sends his owl Gaius after the fish in the fountain, but he flies right through it and disappears. The party realizes that this is another illusion, and the fountain covers the stairs leading to the buried town below. In the main hall, they find four corridors leading out and a set of stairs going down, and in the corner a tunnel that apparently has been chiseled into the room from the Underdark, judging by the drawish letters left above it. After making its way out of the buried hall, they find that this dungeon is set with all sorts of perilous traps. The stairs leading down from the hall into the native rock are trapped with blades, thunderglyphs, and ball bearings, and finally a slide. Adri uses her new power to meld with the shadows to jump ahead of the party and trip the traps before they get there. Then they find a room with a tightrope over a spiked pit. But when no one tries to walk the tightrope, it starts to dissolve, and he realizes that the pits aren't empty, but filled with gelatinous cubes which try to envelop him and the party. Then they encounter a room with a floor of fire, above which floating discs rotate around the room from door to door. When the party attempts to cross, skeletons jump out of the galleries and the ceiling to attack. 
The party beats both of these traps, but finds themselves at a dead-end wall in which there is a haiku poem. There are divots in several of the letters, and the party realizes that they have to go back to the hall in the beginning and check out the corridors, but not the one to the Underdark, to see what they missed. They find a glowing gem on a pedestal in each room and two more of the Weeping Angel statues flanking the door. This time, however, the statues crumble when the gems are touched, revealing two bodaks. These end up being quite tough, and Alistair is only saved from death by Arlen bending luck on his saving throw. With the gems recovered, they are fit into the wall, which opens to reveal a corridor with a polished obsidian wall on one side. Meanwhile, the Tabaxi are back in action. Galchabars asks for their help in investigating the shack in the Mare, where the party found the Mad Mage. They are carried there on a dragon back, after which Galchabar flies in from the other direction on a flying carpet. They investigate the laboratory and open the magic circle which leads to a dimension of chaos. Galchabar is pulled in and the felines go after him. They are quickly set upon by orbs of chaos which lash them with beams of various powers. They defeat the orbs, but not before their cleric is killed in the process. Galchabar comes shooting out of the center of them and tells them to flee. They grab their fallen comrade and beat a hasty retreat, all piling on the carpet which barely whisks them to safety before that whole part of the mare goes up in a titanic explosion. They limp back to town to mourn their fallen friend. Back in the trap dungeon, the party finds when they advance down the corridor that their reflections, which all have goatees, even Adrian Gaius, indicating that they are evil, step out of the wall and attack. The evil selves are then pitched against their good selves. The players have a good time with this, beating on themselves with their evil doppelgangers. Eventually, though, the good side prevails. Then at the end of the hall, they encounter stairs going up. They pass a pit that they have to swing across that not everyone negotiates well, spikes that slide out of the wall, a room full of spiders, and finally a room whose floor is covered with a checkerboard of squares, half with runes. At the end of the room, under a glass dome, is what has to be a phylactery. The party attempts to retrieve it, but finds that the ruined squares explode, and then skeletons appear from the floor. When those challenges are met, they find that the, the key that they found in Alowal's tower fits the glass dome, and they take the phylactery. That causes a giant stone ball to roll out of the ceiling, and it's a race to make it past the traps back to the flaming disc room. One by one, the players fall to be lost to the ball until the last two make it to the disc room. Then the ball shoots into the room and disappears. It was an illusion, and the characters that fell eventually show up. The party begins to leave, but find Dania, Nissian, and Orlana fleeing down the hall to join them as there is a dragon sitting on their airship. Meanwhile, two other groups are busy as well. On one side of the mare, the tabaxi mourn the loss of their friend Moon at the Mad Mage's shack. They decide to resurrect him, but that will require rare ungents they don't have. They journey from their home to Kolesque and back to get them barely getting back in time. When they do get back and get their friend to the druid circle in the mountains, they find it occupied by banshees. They clear them out, and the archdruid resurrects Moons as a dwarf. On the other side of the Mare, a group of dragonborn take off on a trail to gain trophies. All is not well in the mountains. 
The game is running thin, and so there are few trophies to be had. To make things worse, the ruling Snow Owl clan has no males to fight for it and is out of favor, so that clan member is taking abuse from the others. They do finally find a pair of polar bears and slay them, but then a titanic white dragon shows up and claims their kills. They do at least grab one of the heads as they flee, so they have their trophy. Back in the Mare, the party goes back topside. Obviously, they are worried that the black dragon has tracked them down here and is waiting, but they find instead that it is a brass dragon, Loquax, which Galchabar warned them was lonely and would talk their ears off. Nissian says the last time he saw her, she held him captive for a month until he told her all the news he knew. Loquax replies that he seemed to enjoy it at the time. She takes the party back to her lair, making her some souffle, glazed carrots, and creme brulee. It turns out Orlana knows how to make them. Then the party tries to entertain Loquax with their skills. It is a miserable failure. In the late night, Gernval is secretly visited by Loquax, and Arlen sees her leaving his room in the gray of dawn. The next day, they try to convince Loquax to release them, and is as rousing a success as last night was a failure. She sends them on their way. The party returns to the airship and ponders what to do next. They have the Lich's phylactery, but how to destroy it? This kicks off six weeks of episodes without a single fight. Only skills challenges and roleplay. The party does a skills check to see what solution comes to them, and they remember the salmon of knowledge. This mythical fish, if caught, provides insight when eaten. Dania shuttles them down to the Delta to try the first salmon run of the year, and they succeed. During dinner, Alistair remembers that there is a dagger in the tombs of the Cathedral of Dianect that is supposed to be able to pierce even the hardest armor. They make a try at getting that. They board the Melee Aquila and head off to Port of Magnum, where Alistair is hinted he comes from. On the way, they see a number of disturbing sights, abandoned rotting farms and pastures, and an army marching out of Faramond's, the Dwarves' Barony, headed towards Port of Magnum. Then Porta Magnum itself seems to be in trouble with a tent city outside its gates and small smoky fires burning all over the streets. The party ties up in Porta Magnum and Dania announces that she will try to get a new client that isn't so likely to get her killed, like someone transporting dangerous beasts or high explosives, and everyone heads into town. They make a beeline for the cathedral and are quickly received by the bishop. A couple of the players do notice a page quietly slipping out of the cathedral. The bishop agrees to retrieve the dagger, but it will take several days to do so respectfully. As the party exits the cathedral, a begowned girl wraps herself around Alistair, shouting, Cotter! She identifies herself as Morna, and informs everyone that Alistair is really Cotter, son of House Fraser. She takes them back to the family compound, and what a residence it is. It turns out that Cotter's family is fabulously wealthy. The manor house has several wings and many stories and has numerous outbuildings. The family immediately calls for a dress ball to celebrate Cotter's return. When Cotter has an audience with his mother and sisters, he finds his father and brother have perished while he was away, making him head of the house. His sister beseeches him to stay, as the ladies were trained to be ladies of society and not businessmen, and the family finances have been floundering. 
At the ball, the party is introduced to Sinia, Cotter's girlfriend, who has refused all suitors despite Cotter being gone for years. The two tarry behind after all the guests go to bed and steal off to the office to go over the family books, as Sinia has revealed to Cotter that she has been running her family business in her brother's name for years since her father died. She pours over them, and sometime in the wee hours of the night has to agree with his sisters. They have no idea what they're doing and will run the family business into the ground. Cotter can't stay in Porta Magnum with the world in peril and asks Sinia if she can run things for him. She replies she can't as she is not a member of the family, but she could if she was his wife. Cotter proposes. The next day, with time to kill until the dagger is exhumed, the party heads down into the plague tents to see if they can help. Conditions are horrific. There are just lines and lines of beds filled with patients, some moan in agony, some flail at unseen attackers, and some rave like lunatics. The worst affected just lie there, and their limbs have blackened and shriveled. One patient falls out of his bed, his blackened arms just snap off. The overworked staff does what it can, but all the clerical monasteries were raided, and clerics are in short supply. Cotter and Gernval heal as many as they can, but more pour into the tents to take their place. Worse yet, no one knows what's causing it. The food has been tested, the water has been tested, precautions have been made against vermin. Nothing seems to work. Gernval is convinced that some person is doing this, so they repair to a dive bar in the lowest circle of the town and try to buy information, but that leads them nowhere. The only clue they suss out is that it seems to be affecting the poor more than the rich, and the poor have a diet mostly of the cheaper rye cereal. Over dinner, when they quiz Cotter's family as to the habits of his deceased brother, his mother replies that he did have a taste for rye bread. With this valuable theory, the party goes to a granary, and after some searching, they find small fungal bodies amongst the rye grains that must be causing the plague. They gather some clerics and paladins, and purify the grain, and set up to do the same for each of the warehouses, mills, and bakeries. But when they find that the grain fields are infected, they realize they need far more help. The party spends the day visiting all of the churches in town, and one by one convinces each one to send its clerics to the field to help, and the whole of Porta Magnum is cleansed. The next day, the party returns to the cathedral to use the dagger to destroy the phylactery. Placing it upon the altar just has the box slide off onto the floor. Apparently something so holy cannot support something so evil. They pierce the box with a dagger, and nothing happens. The glowing gem on the top dies and falls off, but that's it. Unlikely if this were truly the storage vessel of a lich's soul. The party realize that it has been fooled. Upon contacting Galchabar, he is relieved. With the multiple locations that Alol seems to be in the poem and the bowl, it seems like he may have split his soul into seven pieces, which would require immense power. But let's face it, that's like something out of some kind of storybook. They all agree that they will have to take the poem one step at a time and try to track down all of the phylacteries to find the real one. It is then that Gernval goes crazy again, chasing Arlen all over the Fraser house trying to get the bowl. Only Olana's wild magic summoning a unicorn to stand on him quiets him. Arlen does give the bowl to Gernvel, and he tells Galchabar that he's been having blackouts and doesn't even know who he is. Galchabar urges him to tell the party about it, and he trusts they will help him. 
He does so. And despite Cotter's wedding coming up in ten days' time, they take off to get Gurnville back to his people and hopefully to be healed. The party charters a fast airship to get them to Excalbarium Colise overnight, and owing to what they did the last time they were there, sneaks through the town as fast as possible and takes off up the hill. That's when the arrows start flying. The party is ambushed by bandits, which they defeat, and when they despoil the leader, he is holding the other half of the medallion that Gurnval holds. This leads the party to believe that these are the bandits that left him for dead all those months ago. The next day, they hike further into the mountains, this time to be ambushed by Dragonborn. This goes completely differently. The Dragonborn charge up to Gurnval and then throw themselves at his feet, asking for him not to kill them and calling him war leader. He asked them to take him home. The Dragonborn take the party to a high alpine valley where the tribes make their home in the summer. There he meets the matriarch in charge of the council, and she tells him that she is his sister, and his name is actually Krival, war leader of the Snow Owl clan. The party realizes that the situation is fraught with peril. Supplies are dwindling in the mountains, and the tribes are prepared to raid the valley for food. Only the firm hand of the head matriarch has kept them in check. But the Bear Clan has challenged for the right to lead the council, and with no one to fight for the Snow Owls, they look to take over. Kraval steps up, but he has no trophies to show his prowess. The party takes off up the mountain looking for trouble and finds the White Dragon. It proposes to eat a party member, but takes a magic ring instead. They next confront a yeti and down it after a challenging fight. They have barely rigged it for travel when a frost giant shows up to claim their kill. Clever use of a darkness spell makes him easy picking, and the party takes his head home as a trophy as well. This confirms Kraval's right to fight for the right of dominance, and he meets the bear clan challenger the next day in ritual combat. They wear only paint, leather kilts, and use clubs lined with obsidian shards as weapons. Initially, the fight goes very poorly for Kriv. The challenger is a barbarian, and he flies into a rage. With his damage attenuation, Kriv's blows barely affect him, and with his extra attack, he starts wailing on Krival. Only Krival's healing spells, backed up by Cotter's, keep him in the fight. Then, when the Bear Clan challenger is sure he has him on the ropes, he breaks the one rule of the ring and breathes on Kriv. This gross violation of the Code of Honor breaks whatever inhibition Kriv has, and all of a sudden, he is himself. He is Kraval, war leader of the Snow Owls, and a barbarian, not a fighter. He flies into a rage himself, and now he's on even footing with the challenger. When the challenger becomes exhausted, Kriv gains the upper hand, and now he is shrugging off the other's blows and dealing great damage himself. Soon he kills the challenger for breaking the one rule of the ring. As the dust settles on the ring, and the party is infused with victory, Kraval gets a surprise. The victorious war leader must now marry the matriarch of his clan, which is, of course, his sister. The party has a real icky moment with this, but then she explains that it's only a formality, it's not as if the two of them even have to live together, and they can take as many consorts as they would like. In fact, one has already volunteered, and a brass dragonborn female appears telling Kriv that she has brought eggs for souffle, glazed carrots, and creme brulee. It's Loquax in Dragonborn form again. In the quiet after the wedding, Kraval discusses the party's quest with his sister and how they are looking for a village covered in ice. 
She recalls hunters finding artifacts in a mountain stream and summons the hunter. The party takes off with him and finds the stream with the artifacts from the old kingdom in it. Before they can track upstream, they are set upon by winter wolves. But then Creval realizes that he no longer has a connection to Dianect now that he is back to himself and has no healing powers and things get dire and he nearly dies in the crossfire. But somehow the party prevails. Orlana is particularly happy that she has kept her magic from going out of control the whole time. Then she suddenly teleports lights in the ground on fire and fires off magic missiles. Arlen tries to reassure her that things will get better and tries giving her his quarterstaff as a focus to keep the energies in check. Tracking upstream and running out of time before they have to get Connor back to the church for his wedding, the party comes against an impediment. The canyon that they've been in ends in a frozen waterfall. Climbing it proves treacherous, and there are many slips. But halfway up, Creval realizes that there are buildings behind the ice. The village that they are looking for is covered in the ice waterfall. The party chips its way through the ice to the hollow inside, and sure enough, there is another phylactery here. The party tries to claim the phylactery, but two young remoras erupt from the snow. Orlana is immediately knocked unconscious, and the fight proves difficult as the monster's heated body does damage when struck, so everyone but the casters take damage when they strike the monsters. Worse yet, the eruptions of battle cause the ice ceiling to collapse and chunks of ice rain down on everyone. The party finishes off the monsters, grabs the phylactery, and squeezes out of the ice cave just as it collapses around them, barely making it to safety. Well, this catches you up to speed, but we couldn't possibly put in every hilarious joke, every tense encounter, and all the fun we had, so we do encourage you to go back and experience events as they happen in the actual episodes. But we are happy that you're along for the ride going forward, and we look forward to sharing our adventures with you as a quest goes on to save for Roe. So what will happen next? We'll have to wait for that in the next episode. Until then... Let us know what you think. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. Email us at relicofthepastpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us at Relic of the Past on Twitter and Relic of the Past Podcast on Facebook. Articles and artwork are available at poolmedia.podbean.com. And thank you for playing in the world that lives inside my head. <laughs>